0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time, our practice is to read
1: through the Scripture outside of just the time of teaching of the Word, but also read a chapter in the morning service and evening service so as to get more of Scripture intake. And uh, We've been reading through Ruth on Sunday mornings, and we are in Ruth chapter 4 this morning, Ruth chapter 4, where we pick up the story of God's providential care over Ruth and Naomi through uh, the work of Boaz, a man of God, and caring for Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. No, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He was concerned for the fact that if he were to take Ruth, that that uh, inheritance would also then be split up, not among just his sons, but also uh, it would go to Ruth as well, and that would kind of ruin the inheritance that he had. Verse 7, Now it was the custom in former times in Israel concerning, redeeming, and exchanging to confirm anything... One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord may make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said, The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they shall call his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. We've come to the end of the book of Ruth. You'll have to wait to see where we are next week. But a story of God's redeeming work, a picture really, as we look forward to the New Testament of the ultimate redemptive work of Christ, undeserving as it was. Amen.
0: Good to see you all here this day. We welcome you to open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, please, Chapter 2. Luke's Gospel and Chapter 2. We have treated a bunch of Chapter 1 already and move on to Chapter 2 and the birth of the Messiah. I've actually, uh, this I've, I've headlined this Luke 2, 1 through 20, the birth of the Messiah. I've preached this section of Scripture a number of times Uh, In different ways. And I was looking at those different ways, uh, one focusing on the shepherds, one focusing on Mary. And I decided, uh, I'm going to start over. So I have now a third message on this section of Scripture. And I hope that it will be edifying to you. Uh, It's not so much focused on Christmas, but on the doctrines that we find here, on the difficulties and issues that the text arises more in kind of a. a a focus on the text, not so much with uh, kind of Christmas in the background, if you will. So hopefully it'll be of of a blessing to you as well. We read in Luke chapter 2, verse number 1, "...and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city." And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Or peace and goodwill toward men with whom God has favor, something like that your translation will have. We'll talk about that. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled and at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen, heard, and seen as it was told them. Let's trust the Lord to help us navigate through the text of Scripture here as we look at some issues that it raises for us. Oh, very nice to see Bess here. So nice of you to come and your daughter. Great, glad you could be here. Um, We start out in verses 1 and 2. And uh, Luke matter-of-factly states that a decree went out from the Caesar, Augustus, that the world should be registered. And then he gives a little chronological note that it first occurred while Quirinius was governing Syria. And for many years, this was an issue of great debate and um, thought to be a great difficulty with the Bible. Historian Luke has often been charged with an error in tying the census to Quirinius. Let me address that. Uh, objection from a Christian perspective first and then we'll look at it from more of a historical perspective. Faith, friends, ensures us that God would not permit an error in his word. Okay, That faith uh, that we have as believers, if we, if we have it, I'm not assuming that of everyone in this room, but I'm, I'm uh, hoping it and, uh, and assuming it of, of those that I know uh, have this, share this faith. This faith is, as always, Well-founded faith because it rests upon God himself, God's word as it is coming from God. Thus, our faith in God transfers, as it were, to his word because it rests in a God who cannot lie and cannot err, err, however you want to say it. It's actually err, I think, but who cannot make an error. How about that? Will that uh, do it? God cannot lie, He cannot make an error, He tells the truth always. So consequently, for me, this is a thing, this is a, an idea when somebody brings an objection like this that might have troubled me or caused me to stress out about it years ago, but it's sort of an academic matter to me now. Okay, Not because it doesn't matter, not because it's not true, not because I'm just trying to dismiss it but because I've looked into it, I've understood it, and I've better understood that the Spirit of God working inside of me as a Christian person has caused me to embrace the truth of God's Word as it is the Word of God, not what? The Word of merely Luke, a man. It's not the Word of man. It's the Word of God using men to record His Word to us. So we don't have to you know, get into all this worry and stress and, oh, there's an error in the Bible and all of that sort of thing. It's sort of academic, as I said. It's a waste of time to argue about it in part because it's simply the case that Luke is such a good historian that it would be foolish for us to think that there's some huge error here. Um, You know, he proves himself... uh, Accurate in many other details and other portions of the book, he's carefully researched it. And I might add, I think I say this later in my notes but you know Luke was a whole lot closer to the events than any of us lately, armchair scholars are. Uh, I mean, he was the events that he's recording here occurred probably within his lifetime. If not, then near to just before his birth as the physician. So he may, have, he may have been alive. He may even remember the second of the censuses or the first, even if he's much older. We don't know exactly his age. But in addition, I'll mention just now, in case some of this kind of thing has bothered you or this particular question has bothered you, we can look at some historical information, not just from a a place of faith, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we just throw all caution to the wind, we throw all intellect to the wind, and we just leap out in darkness and, and have a kind of leap of faith to close the gap between what the text says and what we think reality is. That's not the case at all. I've never held that kind of fideistic view of, of faith. Uh, but we, our trust in the passage accurately records truth that is not only Uh, resting in God and our trust in Him, but it's historically justified faith that we have because historical data appears now to agree with Luke. Before we get to that, though, however, note that Quirinius is attested to be governor of Syria from the year 6 to 9 A.D. Now, if you're quick on your feet, your mental feet, you're thinking 6 to 9 A.D. If he's Governor Jesus is born sometime between 6 and 9. That puts Jesus age 30 at like 36 to 39. It seems late compared to what you've heard. And it would be late for the birth of Jesus because also because Jesus uh, was born before Herod died. But we know that Herod died in either 4 or 1 B.C., Ten years earlier, probably, the four, date, 4 BC is the more commonly held date. And just as an aside, by the way, about Herod, uh, you know, with his murderous intentions toward the young child, um, that actually just caused me to think something. I'll share with you in a moment if I remember it. Interesting. As, as an aside, Herod did not live long after the birth of Christ. Remember what happened? Herod tried to kill the child, flee to Egypt, then Herod died. The announcement came to Joseph, bring the family back because those that sought the life of the young child are dead. And so that happened uh, around 4 BC. So the birth of Christ was much earlier than the 6 to 9 reign, as, you, as it were, governorship of Quirinius over Syria. But an archaeological finding in 1764 near Rome in Tivoli showed that apparently Quirinius had been governor twice in two separate time periods over Syria, and it's during his earlier term that it appears that Christ was born sometime between 6 and 4 B.C. Questions about the census abound. You know, was it for taxes? Was it for population count or whatever? As far as I'm concerned, the historical data is plenty now for us to to be justified in believing that Luke is 100% accurate, and Historians should have considered Luke to be 100% accurate before they began doubting him and hunting around for some you know, shard of stone that had a, an inscription on it. Nice to find that, but it was unnecessary for us because the Bible was true all along. But about the census itself, was it a population count? Was it for taxes? I, I don't know for sure. Perhaps it had multiple purposes. When exactly did it happen? Historians seem to be comfortable with the fact that there was a census in 6 A.D., Six years, anno domini, in the reign of our Lord after uh, the Lord's birth, so to speak. Although the timeline is a little messed up because it's not—you know—he wasn't born at zero year zero. But there could have easily been another census ten years earlier. You know, we have a census every ten years, don't we? You well, know, what's the big deal? Um, Luke does indicate that the census first took place, or it was the first registration implying that there was a second or more occurrences of such events in the ancient world of Rome in the first century or just before the first century. And if we go back from six, back a decade or so, and even a little bit more, we find evidence for a decree for a census in 8 BC. And it may have taken a couple years for that census to be completed, poli- uh, you know, certainly if there are political or logistical implications i mean things didn't happen at the speed of the internet back then it took time and so it would put the earlier census right around the time of the birth of christ between 6 and 4 bc and by the way herod did demand the killing of the children in bethlehem and its surrounding regions from what age and under 2 years he was covering his bases because that census took a while to To bring to to pass and complete, so he wasn't exactly sure. But in any case, in the end, the difficulty dissolves because there is a reasonable explanation for it. Luke was, as I said, closer to the events than we are within 30 years of it and certainly uh, perhaps within his lifetime. Now, just because he was around at that time doesn't guarantee accuracy. I'm not putting my head in the sand about that. Any historian will tell you that, and that's the case, but Luke's care and evident um, use of sources and stuff as accuracy makes it far more likely than not that he is correct in what he has said. Furthermore, I don't feel the need to satisfy every um, question or doubt. I'm not obligated to satisfy every critic to the nth degree, okay? In fact, that's an impossible task, a fool's errand, if you will, because some people are just contrary to be contrary. You know, that's the unbelieving mind. Any excuse not to believe the word of God, they will use. Because if they have to believe it, they have to admit something about themselves, which is unpleasant psychologically for them to admit that they're sinners in need of divine grace. It's a... Christianity demands us to transfer our allegiance from ourselves to Christ. It demands that we recognize that we are not just so good as we think we are. It, recognizes, it causes us to recognize that we are humble creatures and not sitting on the throne of life and the world. And so, you know, people try to find any excuse that they can to get out of it. But to the mind which is open and has been informed, it seems very reasonable to me to believe the Scriptures, in this case, even though there is this difficulty for years and years about Quirinius. So I turn now from that difficulty to a little bit more of a kind of personal matter for Mary and for Joseph. Any parent would recognize that to have this kind of upheaval in your life Just before the first baby comes is going to be quite a thing. You know what I mean? Now there's kind of a there could be sort of a twofold thing. One is the challenge of it that we often think about. Poor Mary, you know, bouncing on a on a donkey all the way down to Bethlehem uh, and how difficult that was. But then you know, think of the young couple now together. They've decided they're This is God's will, they're to be married. They're really effectively married, maybe not officially so, but they were betrothed and Joseph has decided he's taking this woman as his wife. God has told him to do so. And so this is their most certainly I would I would guess, I would think, their first journey together as a couple. What an adventure. You know, so you have both the challenge and the adventure aspect of it, but thinking of the challenge for them in the eighth or ninth month of pregnancy to have to travel the 50-plus miles as the crow flies from Nazareth to Bethlehem. On the modern road system in Israel, you can just go to your Google Maps and find out how long it takes. It's about 90 miles, about two hours travel time by car. But in the first century, with the hill country intervening, it would be very difficult, even for someone who is fit as a fiddle, To make this journey, it would take days, not to mention being pregnant, nine months, great with child, young woman, and a man, bewildered by what's happening to them and wondering, what is God doing with us? And all of this trouble because the government made a bureaucratic decree. What's new, right? Could not the counting have been done elsewhere? Did they have to go back to their ancestral homeland to be counted? Well, we don't know the logistics of all of that or if it was special for that region because of the inheritance laws of the Jewish people or whatever it was. We don't understand all of that, and I certainly don't. But but God ordained that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. So he was going to come out of Bethlehem whether parents liked it or not. <laughs> so... He was to come from that little town, the house of bread. I imagine, or at least hope, the young couple experienced some joy thinking that they would appear in the official government records for the first time as a married couple. As I said, probably their first trip together too and it would be quite an adventure despite the difficulties. As an aside, I wonder... What kind of ceremonial things would they have done to memorialize their union together? They had their betrothal or their engagement, um, but did they have a a ceremony? Did they have a, a celebration dinner for their union together? Or were there no such niceties because of the cloud of suspicion that hung over the origin of their child? I mean, they haven't been together and she's pregnant, obviously. What's the deal with that? Unfaithfulness, fornication, that wasn't supposed to be how it played out. So did Joseph have to bear the wrong but the stigma of a baby born before the appropriate time? Do you understand what I'm trying to say, that he's, he's taking this woman to himself She, too, and perhaps the two of them somewhat socially isolated because people look from the outside and say, oh, what's going on there? And Joseph was a good man, not willing to make a spectacle of Mary, and that was before he knew what was going on. Think of that. He was a good man. He was a righteous fellow. And afterward, when he learned what was happening He may have had to suffer the shame heaped upon him by people not so righteous and not so well informed as he about the situation. Can you imagine a people? Well, there's obviously, it's obvious what's happened here. A couple possibilities, that's all there is, right? They didn't consider the third, that a virgin could be with child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Sometimes righteousness has that kind of cost, because no one else perhaps understands all the ins and outs of the situation that the righteous person is in. The righteous one just quietly sits by and takes it on the chin and soldiers on, because they know something that other people don't know. They have experiences that other people don't understand, and they're not unrighteous before God. That's why nothing can be judged before the time. At the judgment seat, God will bring things to light. Some men's sins precede them to judgment. Remember, our brother taught. And others don't come out until later. But you be sure God will straighten all of that stuff out. But for the poor righteous person, sometimes there's a bearing of of wrong or misunderstood shame and stigma and questions because they're holding things and they can't say things. They can't say things they have in confidence or whatever, Think of Jesus, quiet as a lamb before its shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. His life was being taken from him. If only the persecutors would have understood, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They wouldn't have killed him. They would have been horrified if God had just stayed their hand and revealed to them what was about to happen. They would have been horrified to think, we almost laid hands on the Son of God. But they didn't know that. He took it righteously, silently, with all the reproach that came with it. Only he understood the full implications of what was happening in the human realm. God the Father did, of course, in heaven, but... As a man, he just had to take it. So kind of similar to young Joseph here and Mary, having to experience that shame wrongly placed upon them. Well, they come to Bethlehem, and the Bible tells us in verse 6 that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, delivered of child. And I don't know what she have. Uh, midwife, doula, you know, uh, the uh, birthing center and all the stuff that goes on there. And No, I don't know. Didn't seem like very good accommodations, but she has the baby. And simple and unadorned text. Luke just tells us she bore a child. From the world's perspective, just another mother, having just another baby, it happens all the time. No big deal. She wrapped him up to keep him warm and snug, like every mom and dad does. She had her firstborn. Did you notice that in the text? It says she brought forth her firstborn. What does that mean? Well, that means she had otherborn. (laughs) She had secondborn, thirdborn, fourthborn. She had many children after this, her first, just like a normal husband and wife would have at that time period if they were blessed, to have a large family, and they did. Several brothers and sisters, four brothers we know about, several sisters, so five, six, seven, eight at least, seven, eight, nine children, who knows? Who knows if they suffered the, uh, the uh, pain of loss of a miscarriage? We just simply don't know anything about the other history there. But there was a, a, a big difference with this birth. Uh, as far as the world is concerned. No one offered a room in their home or space in their room in the inn for the pregnant mother to have the baby. It was a, a shameful thing, really. But here's the thing. This even, even this accomplished the will of God to have our Savior be of, as the song says, of lowly birth. Jesus was the lowly teacher you remember what he said in Matthew chapter 11? Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. My, my burden is like my, my yoke is light. My burden is easy. He's lowly in heart, he said. He's, he's the lowly king. Remember why he's the lowly king? He rode into Jerusalem on a, a donkey's colt. not on a mighty steed. And Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he was one who was marked by lowliness of mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he was God, equal with God, said, I'll let that go, I'll come down and I'll deal with the shame and the disgrace of all of this for the sake of my creation. Gave himself up for us. His life illustrates for us that God prizes humility and he hates pride. Pride is pernicious, sometimes subtle, often subtle, a sin that hides itself under layers of invisibility. You talk about yourself and uh, your approach to life and how I'm doing all of this and everything, and it's uh, evidence of... Pride. On this subject, I've given you a number of verses, I'll just share a couple of them with you. One is in the great Psalm Extolling the Word of God in Psalm 119 and verse number 21. The Bible says, You rebuke the proud, the cursed who stray from your commandments. Or well, Proverbs has a lot to say about pride. Chapter 6 in Proverbs 17, a proud look, this is one of the things that God hates, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Notice how he hates pride just like murder. That ought to get our attention, shouldn't it? Proverbs 15 and verse 25, the Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Or Proverbs 16, uh, 18 to 19, Holy Scripture says, "Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be humble, sorry, better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. and in one of the uh sin lists in the Bible in Romans chapter one, you're familiar with uh, this portion I trust Romans chapter one verse thirty, as Paul lists the sins of the depraved world, he says in verse 30, they're backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Those are all the hallmarks of the sin cursed life and society in which we live. And about that character trait of pride, notice to whom God announced the birth of his son. Herod, no. Nope. The Pharisees, the, San, the Sanhedrin, Nope. He announced it to the shepherds, the shepherds, who on the social scale were pretty much at the bottom. You send those people out to do the, the hard, dirty, nasty job of keeping these difficult sheep, uh, their blue collar, dirt under the fingernails types of guys, Dirty and poor, yet God sent the angel to tell them of the promise of salvation. God takes the the message to the lowly. You know, the world considers everything high and mighty and great and shiny and beautiful and all of that, and God looks on the heart. And God uses the foolish things of this world to bring to nothing the things that think they're something because he prizes humility and rejects pride. The message of the birth of Jesus is a bundle of good tidings. To all people, it says. In verse 10, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, the angelic announcement said to the shepherds out in the fields watching over their flocks. The message was not one to bring fear or judgment, to, but to bring salvation. In John chapter 3, after that famous verse in verse 16, where God gave His Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, it says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. A lot of people today look at you know, the message of Jesus and they think, oh, now you're telling me about Jesus, so you hate me because I'm a sinner. No, we love you because you're a sinner. God loves you. He has concern for the depth to which you have gone in sin and the consequences that it will bear for you in the long run. He sent His Son to give you eternal life, not to judge you, not to condemn. Of course, there is the side effect. If you you reject Him, there's just a condemnation waiting. That's all there is to it but he really came to save. And after that announcement is made, a throng of angels joined the lone messenger angel and praised God with a couple of statements. First was glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Earlier today, we extolled the value of the goal of raising our kids to recognize and appreciate that the honor and glory of God is the highest good It's the highest thing, that thing towards which we elevate our goals and our priorities and our plans and our procedures, as it were, in our church and our family life. We aim for the glory of God in making and maturing disciples and teaching the Word of God and reaching out to folks who don't know the Lord yet to share with them the joy of knowing the Lord, to share with them the light that can shine in their darkness. God deserves maximum glory because of His wisdom and providing for the rescue of humans from their plight of sin. He deserves glory for His kindness, for His grace, and reaching down to humanity and giving life to those who trust in Him. God deserves that glory. Let it sink in in our lives. If what you're doing is not for the glory of God, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it if it's not for the glory of God? It's for the glory of man, for the glory of self. It ought to be for the glory of God, everything that we do. Now, the second statement that the angel makes, after glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Some manuscripts that are favored by most biblical scholars say something like this, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This has caused no end of difficulty and, and doubt and, 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 uh, and uh, you know objections and so on. A single letter in the Greek text makes all the difference. Uh, just a sigma, an S, as it were, on the end of one of the words uh, changes the meaning of the text in that way. But lest I get down the rabbit hole of, all the Greek and the manuscript evidence and all of that sort of thing, I wouldn't counsel you to worry about it. Something like what we handled in the first two verses of the text. We can look at the, at the manuscript history and we can do all that study and it takes a long time and a lot of knowledge to do that, but we can certainly see an expression of God's kindness toward the entire world. God extends in Christ an olive branch to the entire world. If you want to be saved, you can do that through the work of Christ, anybody. But the peace of God truly only comes upon those individuals that receive him and with, to whom he grants favor in their life. If you have a life of turmoil inside your mind, it, it may well be that you lack the peace that came from the Savior's work. And on earth, peace toward men. Peace. Look at it, if you have no peace, you're at, you're, at, you're at loggerheads with yourself. Your soul is not in joy and delight and gratitude towards God and things are upheaval and you don't know what to do. That's because you don't have your life oriented to the right one. You don't have your life in that peace that God has provided After that message, the shepherds reasoned among themselves and said, well, why don't we go see about this? Sounds like a great idea. And so they visited the child, found it just as the angel had said, babe lying in a manger. That was the sign to them. They knew this was the one. And then they went out and made widely known the saying, which was told them concerning the child. The other person that I wanted to focus on today, not just the shepherds, but also to Mary. Remember, Mary said that God had regarded the low estate of His handmaiden. Chapter 1, verse number 48, that lowly word, there it comes again, that, that word of humility, that word of anti-pride. And look at chapter 2, verse 19. The Bible says all the stuff that happened, and everybody was marveling and wondering at the things that they learned from the shepherds, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. In in, uh, Luke 2.51, which we'll come to later, Jesus, 12 years later, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. A similar phrase happened in Genesis 37. There, remember, Joseph tells his dream to his brothers and his father, and his father rebukes him and says, Shall I indeed come down, your mother and your brothers, and bow down to you? Indeed, you will find out. But it says after that that he paused. It's kind of like a pause button. And it says that Jacob stored up these things and thought about them in his heart. He stored them away because there was something significant going on. And that's what Mary did here. She pondered those things in her heart. Play that out in your mind for a moment if you would. How would a mother cherish these events and think about them over and over throughout her life? The hours that she's nursing the child, raising the child, training the child, going around home, chasing the... I don't know if he had to chase the toddler Jesus, but anyway, uh, funny to imagine. Um, All of that, and she's playing this back in her mind and storing it up later. and, And a few days later, she hears from Simeon that a sword would pierce through her own heart also. And then years later, she stood at the cross of Jesus. What a painful sword that was. I wish that I could have the key to your mind and unlock it and put these things in there and hit the switch that says treasure and ponder so that your mind would be treasuring and pondering these things like Mary did. I can't do that, though. I don't have that key. God can, however. And you have a part to play as well. About these most significant human events, you have a choice to treasure them or reject them, a choice to ponder them or ignore them, a chance to believe them or scoff at them, an opportunity to be grateful for them or to be dismissive toward them. You can consider them carefully as the days pass by or the days can pass by and you perish in your sin. We have here before us true history. It really happened that a man came from God. All the evidence we see later in Scripture points in the direction that he was an extraordinary, unique, different than every other man. And Christians embrace that this uniqueness points to his deity, that he is in fact Lord of heaven and earth, that he died for sinners and rose again from the grave. And that is the whole point of Christmas, that Jesus came to save people from their sins. And all he asks is that you trust in him. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Know that he died on a cross for our sins, for yours, for mine. And thus, he will share with you the gift of eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that these words have found the key and unlocked the brains of people here today and gotten in there and caused the pondering and the thinking mechanism to start working it over to think that Jesus was named Jesus because he's Jehovah Saves. He is the one who came to save his people from their sins, and not only his people, the Jews, but also his people of the Gentiles who would come to him in faith. So, God, I pray that your hand will work in the minds of these ones here, that in the very control center of their lives, their hearts will be improved, their hearts will be challenged, their hearts will be convicted, that we will put you in first place, that it will indeed be in our lives glory to God in the highest, and not glory to self in the highest. Lord, help us to be of lowly mind, to be humble, to recognize that we are nothing apart from you, but we thank you that you have made us and have given us this opportunity to know the truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.